Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Football season is already halfway through, and basketball season is now in full swing, and BetOnline remains your number one spot for all the action this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use the promo code Believe 50, B L E A V 50, to receive your bonus. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. Bet online, where the game starts. All right. Everybody, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of Wired Up. This is Wired Up episode 95 here on a lovely Sunday morning, really recorded on Saturday night, but welcome here on Sunday, however and whenever it is you may be stopping in. We have an interesting show planned for you today with an interesting college football conversation, since this is a lot of what Wired Up originally was, was a chance to revisit the craziness of the college football weekend that gets lost by the NFL Sunday that we are about to embark on. So we will have college football recap and my picks for the week. Since we have Stripe Pipes picks, Walter Mitchell's picks, we'll get to all of those in a sec. But we begin today's show with the conversation going on nationally about the verdict in Kenosha, Wisconsin around the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. And this is a situation that seems as clear-cut as it can be. It is people going to the corners that they already believe in on this case, reinforcing a white supremacy system in the courts of America that has been reinforced across decades and really centuries because the American court system is designed to actively work against black people and maintain the status quo of white supremacy in preventing justice for all. It's a pretty clear-cut case, a clear-cut race case in this event, even though Kyle Rittenhouse did not kill black people in his murders in Kenosha, Wisconsin, around the protests of Jacob Blake. It feels like a pretty clear-cut case. Most people know exactly where they stand on this situation. And yet, at the same time, as the news trickled in on Friday afternoon, it is important to not ignore this conversation uh, and continue to be allies here on this podcast. And so I'd like to take a different angle around the Kyle Rittenhouse situation instead of having the same conversation that we've had in the past in conversations around the Elijah McClain shooting and the Jacob Blake shooting and the Rayshard Brooks case from back in June during the Black Lives Matter protests around the murder of George Floyd and the murders of Ahmaud Arbery. We've had these conversations before, and so instead of rehashing the same ones, I wanted to take a different angle around the Kyle Rittenhouse story because... For those who don't know, Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted on all charges for the for the double murder of two protesters after Kyle drove across state lines to Kenosha, Wisconsin to, quote, defend property, not his property, though, but to defend property in a very public 
execution-style killing uh, last August, and after he killed these people, he walked by police officers as they traveled around him for about 34 minutes, I believe. I may be incorrect on that. This is not 100% fact-checked, but I believe 34 minutes Kyle Rittenhouse walked away after killing two people before finally being taken into police custody peacefully in a similar case where if Kyle Rittenhouse had been a black man killing two two counter-protesters, his body would be rolling across the street in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And so Rittenhouse walks away on all accounts, and he will not spend time in jail other than the time already previously served. So that's the background context there. One of the things I found interesting about the response to this situation is a distinct case of the Rittenhouse one that we can then put on a national scale. And it relates to a conversation we had last week around Giannis Antetokounmpo and the case of the Milwaukee Bucks, where in the aftermath of the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, which echoed nationally in a way that I think this is a less striking conversation than what happened during the Jacob Blake moment in the bubble, you're starting to see the national conversation shift around the Black Lives Matter conversation because we don't want to feel uncomfortable. And by we, I mean white people. White people really don't want to be made uncomfortable by having to talk about real situations like white supremacy and the fact that the default system is in America is for white people to get off because white is the status quo in a similar way to how things were conducted 50 to 100 years ago. Uh, we could go all the way back to 150 years ago to 200 years ago in the founding of America, even though the context is going to change the results are going to be overwhelmingly similar. And this is a case with the Rittenhouse uh, jury where the black jury pool was uh, not seen as being able to be unbiased in this situation, and thus they put an all-white jury together. It's not all-white. There was one black juror, but 11 out of the 12 jurors were white in this case, and Rittenhouse ends up being acquitted, really in part because a poor defense from the uh, pros- or a poor prosecution, well done by the defense in that case, which is why we'd kind of, as a nation, been mentally preparing for Rittenhouse to be acquitted for murder for those who had been following some of the cases around the trial on a national news scale. It felt like this was something that was going to get Kyle Rittenhouse acquitted, and he was all the way through, which creates a national pain, a painful conversation once again about accountability in America. And what made this interesting about Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Bucks was the local response to this situation, because what made the Rittenhouse case more fascinating is that Milwaukee is currently the most segregated city still in America by race. And Kenosha is a suburb outside of Milwaukee by a little bit, and Milwaukee is essentially absorbing Kenosha into this conversation because when we were in the bubble back in 2020, when the Jacob Blake shooting originally happened, which then led uh, days later to the Kyle Rittenhouse murders, you saw the Milwaukee Bucks be the team that initially took the stand to say that we will not play basketball in a protest towards the case, the shooting case of Jacob Blake and bringing prosecution against him, and we were going to have a conversation with the governor of Wisconsin about bringing charges against the police officer, changing legislation, and what would end up ultimately becoming prosecuting Rittenhouse for shooting counter-protesters, which again made this conversation deflecting 
from the fact that Jacob Blake was shot and paralyzed by a white police officer as he was walking away uh, towards his car for, with his kids in the back seat. And if you haven't seen the video of that, or maybe need a refresher on the video of the Jacob Blake shooting that is widely available on the internet, and I encourage people to watch the video if they need a refresher around that. Because as much as we talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse case and, oh, was he defending property and coming across state lines to shoot, as uh, I believe they called over and over, looters and rioters was the term that the judge used frequently during the case, which is obviously racially charged and obviously has connotations across this case that don't need to be dug into deeper. It's surface level deflection on this uh, it's disingenuous deflection on its most basic level and it got ate up because it was an all-white jury who wants to use those terms as a way to not have to address the situations of white supremacy as we discussed earlier now where this all comes back to the milwaukee bucks was that when the milwaukee bucks were the initial team protesting the uh when they were the team that was putting out the statement that they were not going to play basketball, which then led to the NBA shutting down for a day because once the Milwaukee Bucks protest, that led everyone else to protest afterwards. The voice after that, speaking on behalf of the Milwaukee Bucks, was George Hill. He was the vocal leader on behalf of the team, not Giannis Antetokounmpo. And this was a really interesting situation because we didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And then after that, Giannis Antetokounmpo officially established himself nationally as the best NBA player in the world and arguably the face of the NBA, at least for a new generation. If you want to argue LeBron is still in that place, Giannis Antetokounmpo established himself by, I mean, officially winning a second MVP. We knew he was going to win the MVP in the bubble, but since the Jacob Blake shooting case where the Milwaukee Bucks and Orlando Magic paused the NBA playoffs, and really the league as a whole then had the debate about whether or not they were going to play, and there was the all-league meeting that was in major that was everyone was having conversations about and they decide to keep playing because really if they were going to burn it all down and burn the platform down it really wasn't a cause worth burning everything to the ground for and so they continue going and then we go into the off season and we have conversations about protests and we put black lives matter on the floor and the NBA does the best they can as a corporation but then just as America moved on from the conversation around black lives matter and we saw more racially charged language come back because the summer of George Floyd was slowly but steadily dissipating and alternative options were becoming available, such as scapegoating the people who were protesting as rioters and looters and not true patriots in the way. And also on the flip side, framing the true patriots in a propagandist way as the white supremacists on the way to defend property in the exact same way. If you go back to 1860s, 1870s, 1880s propaganda, all the way to a birth of a nation in the 1910s, you highlight the white supremacists who are there to defend the honor of America. It is a classic propaganda technique and people are falling for it all over again. It is not a new play out of the textbook. They, uh, putting white supremacists on a platform. It is not a new technique, but it is being used quite effectively again. All of that comes back to the conversation around the Bucks that 
white people don't have to focus on this situation. They can deflect. They can not think about it the same way they've always been able to. That is what white privilege is. And so you have that happen again around the Jacob Blake situation where you can scapegoat the people who are protesting and make the people who were murdered by Kyle Rittenhouse not actually victims, but actually rioters and looters in the same situation that we've seen played out with black people, except for people who are sympathizing with the struggles of black people who were murdered by Kyle Rittenhouse. Because again, the only way this isn't a true stereotypical race conversation is that Kyle Rittenhouse didn't kill black people and everything else is a classic race conversation. And so then you have Kyle Rittenhouse being acquitted for killing white people. And then you have the Milwaukee Bucks statements that come out in the aftermath as the NBA makes statements around Kenosha, but you don't see large counter protest conversations the same way it would have happened had we been in the bubble last year and there was more national support for it. Which brings me to the conversation I wanted to have around the Milwaukee Bucks. Because the Milwaukee Bucks shouldn't be obligated to be the vocal leaders in this situation, but because they have been given this platform of being black people overwhelmingly in positions of legitimate power and influence, we've come to expect some moniker of a conversation around this or some moniker of a statement. When Ultimately, it does not matter. I don't want to make it seem like Giannis Antetokounmpo not making a statement is Giannis Antetokounmpo betraying black America. But in the same time, Giannis Antetokounmpo does have that platform and not using it is a level of culpability in this situation that even I as a white person should not demand. I understand there's a tone deaf aspect to this, but at the same time, I googled the, the I was on actually let's go back a little bit so yesterday I, w- I opened the ESPN app for a quick moment and the leading headline on ESPN leading headline on the bar on the ESPN website is Chris Middleton disheartened by the convert by the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict and Chris Middleton was the leading voice on this situation and then if you go further to more stories from Fox 6 News in Milwaukee and national stories on uh I believe NBA media outlets as well as national media outlets such as Fox News talking about this case, the voices who you hear quoted over and over are Chris Middleton and Mike Budenholzer, the white coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. But if I type into Google right now, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Kyle Rittenhouse, you will see no such conversations around this. The leading headlines there are Giannis on future in Milwaukee. The next challenge might not be here. Giannis Antetokounmpo featured in GQ Men of the Year issue. Bucks coach on Rittenhouse verdict. Fight for better. Giannis Antetokounmpo leads Bucks to route of Pistons. And there is no mention anywhere of Giannis Antetokounmpo having a, a statement or any sort of opinion on the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. If you go down to the seventh headline, actually... It is clutch points saying Kyrie Irving blasts rotten system after Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. You cannot find any statement of Giannis Antetokounmpo discussing the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. Again, we had this conversation on Wednesday about Giannis Antetokounmpo in the aftermath of the GQ article, which is Giannis Antetokounmpo 
very often gets framed as the non-modern star in the NBA. And that happens because Giannis Antetokounmpo is innocent. And Giannis Antetokounmpo is affable and very kind. Giannis Antetokounmpo comes from poverty, and we like to do poverty porn a lot with players who come from nothing and then achieve their dreams because of their one-in-a-billion athletic ability. And we do that a lot, and it's really, really dirty, and we play that game a lot with Giannis Antetokounmpo. And what this also means quietly, which we don't point out, and by we I mean white people, is that Giannis Antetokounmpo does not speak out on social issues. Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, we talked about this in the Mirren Fader book that came out, Giannis, uh, the birth of a, or the rise of an MVP. We talked about this back in August when the book came out. It's a very good book, and I encourage everyone to read it, which is Giannis comes from a place where the third largest party, political party in Greece, is essentially the Nazi party. There's a lot of Nazis in Greece. Greece does not grant birthright citizenship to immigrants, and it's an overwhelmingly white and ethnic majority, which overwhelmingly, when you have people concentrated who are similar, who have similar values, you're going to see them get distorted because there is no check and balance on, hey, this is something that's not okay, and different perspectives help people grow themselves. I know this because I am living in a place where different perspectives have helped me grow across my life and now living in college where when you have friends from different backgrounds and people with different backgrounds in legitimate positions of influence, you start to learn more about how the world is not the way that you thought it was when you grew up in an overwhelmingly white and straight and male community and with white straight male friends. And so this is the unlearning process that a lot of people go through when you're exposed to different ideas which I think is an interesting point in America because instead of being exposed to alternative viewpoints, a lot of people will bury themselves into their own corners because that's a comfort zone. And sometimes the only way to break that cycle is with generational changes and you know pushing for real legitimate change and just the ecosystems that people operate in. But all of that is to say that white people still feel uncomfortable around that situation. And Giannis Antetokounmpo comes from a place like that where there is a really, really strong ethnic majority in Greece, pro-Greece and pro-the true Greeks, um, which is not Giannis Antetokounmpo, is not this black immigrant boy from Africa, is not a true Greek, and this is an overwhelmingly popular sentiment in Greece. And Giannis has been very, very limited in his critique of the Greek government because and the Greek Nazi party and just Greek culture as a whole because Giannis very much loves Greece and wants to be accepted within his home country and his country accepts him but they only accept him once he has something to offer for them which is talking about the beauty of Greece on a national scale and so Giannis Antetokounmpo one time posted a video on Bleacher Report about um, white supremacy back home in Greece and as soon as the backlash came in the video was taken down and there are no evidence there is no evidence anywhere of that video existing elsewhere after it happened it was a very ominous way to end the chapter that Mirren Fader put out which is that Bleacher Report put out a video of Giannis and then 12 hours later it was deleted from all social medias with no trace of it existing anywhere on the internet and so Giannis Antetokounmpo was not the vocal leader when it came to the protest of Jacob Blake. In fact, he was kind of buried in the corner a little bit on this conversation. 
and Giannis Antetokounmpo was very much not at the forefront of the conversation around Kyle Rittenhouse after the verdict came in. It was Chris Middleton, a black player from Texas, and Mike Budenholzer, the white leader of the Milwaukee Bucks, who partially is just from media exposure, but at the same time highlights this idea of the anti-modern star, which includes the idea of not being vocal on real-world issues and trying to help stimulate real-world change. And this is something that we've had to figure out really across the last decade, but it goes back 60, 70, 80 years with the athlete having influence to Muhammad Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Robertson. But more frequently, recently, we've had this in the LeBron James conversation. Now you have a generation of athletes that go even further than LeBron James because for all of LeBron James's great work that he's done around furthering the conversation around social justice that his platform was only because he was very very famous and very very good at basketball but LeBron James is not a radical in any stretch of the imagination LeBron James is a very very wealthy basketball player who believes in racial equality for people that look like him and at the same time LeBron James was very, very pro-Hillary Clinton and very, very pro-Joe Biden. There are players in the NBA who go much further on the political spectrum and recognize that a lot of the capitalist system is a way of reinforcing your own um, oppression because the system is never really going to create legitimate change. Putting forward two candidates in elections for really hundreds of years that remain pro-democracy and remain pro-capitalist and a lot of propaganda around that is always going to be there at least until we're willing to acknowledge that the system is overwhelmingly broken and it needs legitimate retooling outside of just the tinkering and working around the building because at its core the foundation is rotten within America and the only way to really achieve any real monicum of racial equality is to tear down the system and build it straight back up or achieve gender equality or achieve uh, class equality because America is becoming an increasingly unequal country with a wealth gap between black and white of 10 to 1 and between male and female of something like 6 to 1 right now, I believe. And so, as you see, the, the only way to break it down is to rethink the capitalist systems as a whole. And we're not in a position as an American society where we're going to do that because you can't overrun the American government at this point in any state you can't you can't overthrow the american government like it's just can't not it will not happen in our lifetime and so we've kind of acknowledged that we're now operating within a system that we cannot control these are more radical ideas and people always uh, give jokes to me because in some groups i'm the capitalist and in other groups i'm the communist but i love people who make jokes about that to me because i'm like i can point you out to some real communists like i i can introduce you to real communists if you think this is radical and what i'm proposing is radical in you know some of the things we talk about with racial justice and prison pipeline systems and black and the murders that go unequate that murders that go unaccountable with wow that was bad murders that have a lack of accountability you will see more more progressive conversations than this and more radical conversations than the ones that i am having and this is similarly to the case of lebron james is that people who scapegoat lebron james for being a communist anti-american piece of shit (laughs) 
there are way more progressive people than LeBron James. LeBron James is a moderate, but he is a figure that is now used for propaganda, similarly to how woke is being used in propaganda when woke was originally a meaning of black people recognizing the means of their own oppression back in the 2010s when the phrase was coming together, like Stay Woke, the song by Childish Gambino that came out in 2012. That song is very much about recognizing that the world is oppressing black Americans and black Americans don't need to be subjugated to the means of their own uh, their own oppression without acknowledging that that oppression exists. And now woke has been hijacked in a way for people to say, oh, okay, so this is people who are awakened to the injustices of the world that don't actually exist because we don't want to acknowledge that it exists in a format like this. All of that to say, this is getting sidetracked a bit back to the Giannis Middleton conversation. There are people who are more radical than LeBron James, but Giannis Antetokounmpo appears to go the other way from LeBron James, and it's always really disheartening. And first of all, it's disheartening that Chris Middleton has to be the voice on this at all, but we've given these people a level of influence that black Americans do not have because in not many other sectors is it an overwhelmingly black corporation that just doesn't exist in America on such a national scale. And so it's disheartening to have this conversation again because like we talked about on Wednesday, the classic trope of Giannis Antetokounmpo being a, an anti-modern superstar has this connotation in his background, where Giannis Antetokounmpo is not going to have any level of headline around Kyle Rittenhouse. And when you try and find a Giannis Antetokounmpo headline about him discussing Kyle Rittenhouse, it will take you to Kyrie Irving talking about Kyle Rittenhouse. And this is the classic trope that people want to play, but won't discuss. They'll discuss how Giannis is affable and look at him at Harry Styles concerts and drinking smoothies and just a lovable kid who loves America. But the flip side of that is that Giannis Antetokounmpo is also not going to rock the boat. And even Chris Middleton's middle-of-the-road statement that gets aggregated because someone from the Milwaukee Bucks said something about the shooting that was in Milwaukee, even though, again, Chris Middleton is from Texas. And he is doesn't really have a super large connection to the area other than being the face that represents that region behind the one who is deferring from this conversation. And so we see a classic case of what we talked about on Wednesday, briefly mentioned on Friday with the fact that Giannis Antetokounmpo might have been unvaccinated during the NBA Finals, but nobody knew except for people within his small social circle. He's vaccinated now, but Giannis Antetokounmpo was maybe unvaccinated during the NBA Finals. All of that is really, really, really interesting because we don't talk about it enough and again this doesn't detract from the fact Giannis Antetokounmpo is an incredible basketball player it's the reason he's the cover art person in this podcast is because I love his game so much and yet all of this is true and it's disheartening I wish Giannis Antetokounmpo weren't this person but I also can't expect Giannis Antetokounmpo to be perfect it's okay Giannis Antetokounmpo is not going to be a perfect person or a perfect basketball player or the person I want to do everything that supports my viewpoint. It's not going to happen. It's just really disheartening that he hasn't been in that position, just as it's disheartening that we have to have this conversation over and over again without any progress, because all of this is just taking a new stance at conversing about something 
that is very clearly black and white in its most literal sense possible. All right, so there's no great way to transition on that one. By the way, if you didn't listen to uh, Wednesday's podcast or maybe you... uh, weren't were unclear about what uh, we were talking about with Wednesday's podcast of Giannis being the anti-modern star. I hope this is a more clear-cut example of exactly what it is that we are talking about, because all this across the last year feels like the best example I can give about the silence around this issue that really reflects a national conversation as a whole, and Giannis becoming the face of the NBA and Kyrie Irving becoming a martyr of the NBA and used in propaganda is all coming full circle for this conversation uh, because it is a changing time and this feels like the world is flipping back the other way, that the the progress that has been made across the last decade is being reversed in the other way. So you have a case like this that you see a clear-cut black and white, uh, well, I mean, I mentioned it before, this was unintentionally, but you see a clear-cut black and white discrepancy that Again, I I hope this makes the conversation a little bit more clear. So to transition here, I'm just going to awkward transition right through this uh, to talk about the University of Utah. Speaking of white people, the University of Utah, because that is uh, where this conversation is pivoting to, is the University of Utah pummeling Oregon on Saturday in a weird pivot that we had here. But yeah, number three team lost. Oregon is out of the college football playoff picture, which I guess means that... We are, uh, I guess, kind of in a place where we don't know what to do at this point with the college football playoff rankings, because does this mean Cincinnati is now a top four team? Does this mean that Michigan is in a position to jump into the top four? Because we know now that Georgia, Ohio State, and we think Alabama are going to be locks for the college football playoff, assuming Ohio State doesn't lose to Michigan. If Michigan wins, Michigan will get in instead of Ohio State. So whoever wins the big game next week, next week is a quarterfinal matchup between Ohio State and Michigan, which should be fun to talk about because that rivalry obviously has grandiose connotations around it. But this should be really, really interesting because what do you do with the fourth spot now? In any case you want to get rid of Cincinnati is much there. And by the way, Razor Rosenthal and I talked about this last week. Like This was a very, very strong pro Utah podcast we explained why it was that Utah was going to be able to win other than just the Pac-12 does stupid things all the time like they absolutely dominated Oregon and the conversation about Cristobal going to Miami is an interesting one that's come up this week and we'll do that on another podcast once it becomes something that's more plausible Uh, what I find interesting about this is We knew that was going to happen, but Utah is just playing a spoiler at this point for that. So who gets to fill the last playoff spot is a really difficult question because there's every single possible case to work against the University of Cincinnati, every force possible. And yet you look around, there's not really a lot of teams left. Oklahoma State's going to probably lose to Oklahoma. Oklahoma could win the conference, but that's not going to be good enough given how they almost lost to Kansas. They're out of the picture at this point. And Wake Forest lost to Clemson this week, so they've got no path to the play. They didn't have a path to the playoff in the first place. But 
it's everything working in favor of the University of Cincinnati to get that final playoff spot in the last two weeks. And it's fun to think about it happening, but at the same time, it just kind of fell into their lap. The Oregon loss just kind of let everything falling into their lap. In a year where the ACC was terrible, in a year where the Pac-12 was terrible, more terrible than they usually are, in a year that the Big 12 was terrible, it looks like Cincinnati's going to be the beneficiaries of this because they're just isn't anyone left to stop them even they beat Notre Dame and that's going to be good enough for them to sneak their way in and so congratulations for the red carpet coordination for the University of Cincinnati at least it's what it's starting to feel like as long as they just don't mess it up in the next couple weeks just don't lose one of these last games to East Carolina and whoever they play in the conference title game it looks like everything is going to work out A-OK for Cincinnati, and they're going to get to be the group of five team that finally makes it to the college football playoff. And Oregon, like, this is... I want to do the Pac-12 joke show, but this one feels like Oregon just not being in the perfect position to capitalize. And that's a rough break for Oregon because of how hard it is for a team from the Pac-12 to get to the college football playoff. And they beat Ohio State this year and built a regional powerhouse. Like, this was the king team of Mario Cristobal's. And by the way, like, Ohio State is really, really good now. Like, Ohio State might be championship good over Georgia at this point. They're both so damn good. And (laughs) Alabama had 560 passing yards from Bryce Young and only won by seven against Arkansas. So I'm looking up, I'm like... Is Alabama actually that good? But you know Alabama's always good. Those three teams, again, are the dominant powers. It's a classic case of college football. But it hurts for Oregon because we've talked about that regional powerhouse that they built in a year where USC finished 4-6 and before they play next week. They won't make a bowl game. And Washington is barely going to make a bowl game. They're going to have to play the Apple Cup just to make a bowl game. And in a year where the Pac-12 is so down and beating each other up Oregon was that team claiming the t- the throne of sorts in that Pac-12 race and it just didn't finish with getting that coordination that Cincinnati is about to get which is just a rough break for them which brings us back to the conversation we had on Wednesday of last week around college football coaches which is in a sport where you can't be Alabama Ohio State Georgia Clemson Oklahoma, when you can't be those people without a ton of luck, like getting really, really lucky like Clemson for hiring the guy that nobody wanted to be hired in the first place and that building Clemson from a mid-tier program into a national powerhouse that can win two championships, a lightning-in-a-bottle team. If you're not that lightning-in-a-bottle team, where do you go from there? And Oregon's one of these teams that can build a national powerhouse because of the Phil Knight money, but at the same time, Oregon wanted that moment in the red carpet coordination, even if they were going to lose in the playoff, even if they weren't going to do anything, just Oregon getting to that place was the victory of the Cristobal team, getting them to a second tier program like Oklahoma, who loses in the first round every year, like Notre Dame, who loses in the first playoff game every year. Just getting to that point is a ridiculously huge victory for the University of Oregon. And the fact they aren't going to get that at a time where Cristobal might leave to go to the University of Miami. If you've been following that story this week of the Miami Hurricanes athletic director, Blake James getting fired and Manny Diaz being 
on the on his way out because new athletic directors are are pitching their head coaching candidates to the school um, and seeing if that would incentivize them to get the job. There's been conversations of Lane Kiffin would be willing to leave Ole Miss to go to Miami. Miami's university, according to Mike Ryan of the Lebitard Show, is now putting in $30 million more a year to fund the football program and seeing the potential cost analysis benefits down the road of if you invest money now, there is a massive boost in attendance from having a good football team, as well as the the revenue stream that comes in from making major bowl games, even at a time where there's a report that there might be a 12-team playoff coming sooner rather than later, which changes all the math around this. Not the fact that there's still three powerhouses, but the fact that opening up the playoff picture means everyone gets that taste even the second and third tier programs have even more of an incentive to start firing coaches sooner and Cristobal getting to that powerhouse would still be rewarded because Oregon by losing to Utah would still make the college football playoff and have a puncher's chance against you know Michigan or I don't know Cincinnati if you want to go to Cincinnati so yeah, all of the format's going to change and we can have that conversation then, but what's interesting is that Oregon's program kind of stops right around here and this is the pinnacle of the Oregon football team. And if Crystal Ball does leave, it's going to feel empty in the very end, kind of like what happened with Iowa State and Matt Campbell, who is still there by the way, but feel empty there, feel empty with that Minnesota team, that Penn State team that almost made the playoff 5 years ago the Michigan team that was right there until Ezekiel Elliott scored the touchdown in double overtime, it's going to feel really empty and unfulfilling when this is a hugely, hugely successful run of football at the University of Oregon. And such is the nature of a winner-take-all system and setting your expectations at being consistently, at the very least, a Tier 2 program, which even with all the resources of Oregon, still might be an unreasonable and unattainable goal, regardless of how well Mario Cristobal's run has been, or how well Chip Kelly's run was, or how well they did with Marcus Mariota winning a Heisman, with Mark Helfrich making it to a national championship game. Even though they've made three or two national championships in the last 12 years and were trying to make the playoff for a third time, even with that, it's still nearly impossible to set the expectation when you have that bar that you're trying to reach. And that bar is being consistently in the college football playoff. And they've done it across coaches and they've done it across play, uh, organization. They've done it with three different coaches and three different regime changes at Oregon because they have that Phil Knight money. And it's going to feel a little bitter because they weren't the Mariota teams, and they weren't the Chip Kelly National Championship losers. And that's kind of disappointing for Oregon. Maybe there's a level of perspective that will come from winning the Rose Bowl, but at the same time, they won a Rose Bowl with Justin Herbert, and that didn't seem to fulfill Oregon quite as much. And that's kind of disappointing. But it also is an expectation mover for the university. All right, let's finish up this Wired Up podcast with my picks of the week for week NFL, NFL week 11. Wow, almost had it there. We are almost a perfect podcast, but did mess up right there. So 
my picks for the week going along with Walter Mitchell's picks, which you uh, we talked about over on Friday. Walter had the Raiders, Chargers, Browns, Colts, and Packers. Blake Jude from Stripe Pipe Cincy had the Ravens, Cowboys, Washington, Miami Dolphins, and already 1-0 and with the New England Patriots. So I'll finish up the picks here by taking the Arizona Cardinals with or without Kyler Murray. I still feel good about the Cardinals winning at minus one and a half against the Seattle Seahawks. So I like that one. I'll take the Carolina Panthers to win against Washington with three points of cover to help me out. Maybe a classic letdown game. Maybe the Panthers just being better than Washington by about three points. So I like Cam Newton and the Panthers to win this week. Not necessarily because they're like uber better than them, but I do like them to win this week. Uh, I will take the uh, Raiders to win plus one and a half against the Cincinnati Bengals. Toss-up game. Just going to play the odds on that one. Took the Bengals on the uh, podcast over with Juju. I'm going to take the Raiders here just to kind of flip it up, stay kind of even keeled on that one. So... I'll take the Raiders. I will take the Buffalo Bills going against Walter head-to-head this week. He had the Colts. I will take the Buffalo Bills, even though I feel like a seven-point spread is about appropriate for that game. I will still roll in with Buffalo this week. And finally, I will take the New York Giants at plus 10.5 against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. On Monday night, I believe in the Danny Dimes backdoor cover because the Giants have backdoor covered in so many games this year. So I will roll with the Danny Dimes backdoor cover in a loss against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast and Wired Up We have podcasts every single day, Monday through Friday, and double episodes dropping in on you tomorrow, so be on the lookout for that. Thank you, everybody, for stopping in today, and as always, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow with a double NFL Monday and Memes of the Weekend podcast.